round, gather round. It's good to see you guys. Love seeing your faces, beautiful faces. I know some of you guys are sitting there thinking, man, it's cold in here. You know, but look, honestly, okay? The moment I turn this thing off, it's going to, like, just raise up in here. So you just have to deal with it for about an hour, and we're going to be great. And you, you, you probably won't even leave this room afterwards. But trust me, it's better than outside right now. It's hot out there. I don't know, it's weird. It's fall weather. It's like 90 degrees. All right. Hey, I'm glad you guys are here. Um, you know, if you guys didn't know, we've been, we've been starting our service at 1230, okay? Our, our 1230 service is a, uh, usually when you come at 1230, you know, we, we, we kind of create a room, a space, because I wanted to meet you where, where you're at, you know, so that you can meet me where we wanted you to be at. So 1230 is, you come, hopefully we'll make it a little bit more pretty outside. It's supposed to be a meet and greet time. You come, you say hi, how you doing, how's your week, grab some coffee if you could, you know. Uh, but we'll make it a little bit more, uh, a little more special out there during that 1230 to 1245. At 1245 on the dot, Chris has promised me without fail that we will start worship service. Yes, right? Amen, amen. All right, so that does not mean that because we start at 1245, y'all show up at like 1 o'clock, okay? That just means that I'm making room for you, make room for me, all right? Uh, I have sad news to you guys. This is the last message of this series. Oh. So you're like, man, thank God. <laughs> you're like, man, it's been 10 weeks. We've gone through 10 weeks of Corinthians. Uh, it's, 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 been, it's been a long 10 weeks. I, actually, I preached the book of Corinthians before. I, I preached through the whole entire book before. I went through the whole entire, uh, all the chapters. But we're going to stop at this one, at uh, Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, if you guys don't know what we've been doing, pretty much these past 10 weeks, what we try to establish and try to create for you guys is this picture of your Christian identity come into contact and come into class with your culturally uh, bred identity, identity that you've, that you've learned, adopted, grown up into, now fighting with your Christian identity to take control. And so these two identities come together, and where they clash is where you would either make room for Jesus or he's out the window for your life, right? And we talked about areas between uh, your personal um, your, 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 your singleness, your, your, your married life. We talk about areas of, of your work life where either you, you feel like you are making it in this world or you're feeling like you, you're, you're failing in this world. And yet the Christian identity tells us something different, right? Our singleness tells us we, we ought to be single because I'm an independent person, do my own thing. But the Christian identity tells us something different about singleness, right? About sexuality, how like our, the cultural way of, th- of thinking about sexuality is telling us one thing, but our Christian identity is telling us a different thing about sexuality, right? Or even when it comes to the gray areas of life, about drinking and voting and air tattoos and whatever comes up, and here's our culture, and here's even sometimes our religious identity telling us something, and here's the Christian identity speaking into our life. And so where we make room for that, is where we actually make room for Jesus in our lives, all right? So today I'm going to end this, I'm going to end this message with one area, one area that we should have talked about from the, from the beginning, but it took 10 chapters to get to, right? It's the area of our heart, all right? Because ultimately, what you do, how you do it, how you portray it, what you think about it, all of that is driven by one specific area, it's your heart, all right? Is there God in your heart? And that's pretty much it. Is there Jesus in your heart? Is he there? And Paul is going to come to the church in Corinthians, and he's going to pretty much lay it down at this point, right? And the, rest of the, the rest of the chapter, he's trying to, to prove it about the resurrection and all that good stuff. But here is this. Is God in your heart? Do you know your heart? Where are we at? Okay, church, 
I'm excited. It's not going to be a long message, but it's going to be a very good message, all right? You guys are like, yes, not long. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Open your Bibles. Let me read this for you guys. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read the first five verses. We're going to go this together. So the first five verses is Paul is going to use a history. Actually, the 13 verses is Paul is using the history of the Israelites as a way of teaching this church something very specific. He's going to use the history of the Israelites to tell them something very specific because the church at this point, Corinthian church, they're, pro- they're kind of like thinking, like, you know what, we're pretty, we're pretty holy, I think. We're, we're doing the right things. We're, we're, we're living pretty good lives. We have our baptism. Man, we, we, we dedicate our lives to God, to Jesus. We, we've done communion. You know, we don't do communion unless we actually believe in this stuff. We're doing it. We're, we're actually going out there living our life for Jesus or for God. And so what's, what's your beef, Paul? Why are you so upset? Why are you so upset over areas of idolatry, sexuality, or selfishness? Why are you, why are you so upset about these areas, right? We have this. It's there. It shows in us, doesn't it? And so Paul begins to use the history of the Israelites to kind of speak to them. He talks about their baptism through the sea. And he talks about their communion of manna and rock, a water from the rock. So check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. This is what he says. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan reverie. We should not commit a sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for your word this morning. As we begin to close out this series in making room for your son, Jesus Christ, in our life, I pray, Lord, that you would convict our hearts of the truth of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would just awaken us to the truth of our own lives and our own personal walk with you. I pray, Lord, that we will be honest with you. And I pray, Father God, we will take the steps into having you as our Savior and our Lord directing and guiding our steps, Father. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. And so here we are. Paul's talked to him a lot about different things, sexuality, food, drinking, um, singleness, um, reality of their lives, their identity. And so they are coming to Paul, and they're pretty much saying this, Paul, look, man, look, we've been baptized. You know how crazy it is to be baptized in this world right now? Do you know that the Roman emperor is trying to kill us? Do you know that Christians are being persecuted left and right? And we have the courage to get baptized. That's a big thing. Doesn't that at least give us some credit to to show you that we are holy, God-fearing people? 
And God's saying, yeah, you, and Paul's saying, yeah, you did get baptized. That's awesome. And they're saying, Paul, we take communion. You know that you know, when, when I come and tell you guys to take communion, it's, it's not some joke here, right? The, 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 the essence of communion is that when you come up and you take the wafer, you dip it into the juice that represents the blood, what you're really saying is, I saw what Christ did. He broke his body. He, he poured out his blood for me. And therefore, when I take this communion, it is me symbolizing that I too will pour out, break my body, and pour out my life for God's work and God's glory. We're, we're making a symbolic action here, Paul. Why are you so upset? We're not, we're not just doing, we're not just taking it. We, we, we have reality here. And Paul's saying, oh, that's cute. So you think that you got baptized and that you take communion. And maybe you're serving in the church. Maybe you're a leader. Maybe you're an elder. Maybe you're doing things. You think just by that somehow it makes you and qualifies you for his kingdom. You think that was amazing what you did? Can I tell you something that was even more amazing? Let me show you what was more amazing, he says. He says, look at our history. Okay, look at the, our forefathers. What happened to them? Verse 1, do not be ignorant of the fact, brothers. This is what actually happened. Our forefathers were under the cloud and that they, were, that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into, the sea, uh, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What Paul is saying is like, you thought that your sacrifice, your courage, you're being baptized now in the Roman Empire persecution. That, that's a crazy thing. They saw the reality of God. They saw the sea split in two as they walked through it. They saw the cloud, a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night walking with them throughout their time in the desert. They saw the very presence of God. And guess what? He was not pleased with them. And so you think that somehow your baptism right now is pleasing to God? Don't be foolish. Look what he says here. He says, they all ate, verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. That rock was Christ. And this, this part is the Old Testament story where they were grumbling about, we're trapped in the desert. God's, you know, brought us out here and we're starving and he's trying to kill us. And so what does God do? He rains down manna from heaven. Imagine waking up, coming out of your tent in the morning and seeing just heavenly bread. I don't even know what it looks like or what it tastes like, but it's from heaven, so it must be crazy, right? Heavenly bread in front of your tent each morning for you to pick up and eat. Imagine you walking through the desert and you're, you're, you're thirsty, you're parched, and you're complaining to God that where he's, he's brought us out here to, you know, to die. And Moses hit a rock and water burst forth from that rock, purest, most refreshing water, and they drank it. They actually saw the reality and power of God. And you think that you take communion is somehow special. That's cute, right? You think that by doing this, it's, it's, it's special. Look what he says in verse 5. Nevertheless, even though they saw the reality of God, they saw his hand in action, they saw the very miracles he did, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. God was not pleased with them. You know why? You know why? Because they were not honest. The Bible calls this whitewashed tomb. You know what a whitewashed tomb is? It's on the outside you are clean. 
On the outside, you put up all of the appearances of godliness, the forms of it. You do the right things. You say the right things. You even act the right way. But on the inside of a tomb is what? It's a dead body. (laughs) On the inside of a tomb, it's a dead body. And so here we are. Here we are, this church comes up to Paul and says, look, we look right, we do right, we serve, we lead, we do what we're supposed to do. And Paul says, that's good, that's cute, but here's the problem. You have all the forms of godliness, but you do not have its actual power. You have all the outward appearance that you are walking with him, but you do not have it in your heart. Because you are not honest with the reality of what's going on in you. All right? You, we all hate fakers in our life, yes? We all hate people who say one thing, but they actually do another. We actually fight against that. We protest against that. We're passionate against that. And this is the conundrum of, your, of our generation that I sometimes have a hard time seeing or understanding, is that we're so passionate about hypocrites and fakers, and yet we have the hardest time seeing it within ourselves. Isn't that weird? We know exactly who and what people we've done that is wrong, that is right, that's not uh, moral, that is without integrity or respect, and yet we do the exact same thing and we don't even bat an eye. Outwardly shows all the right things, but inwardly having no power. We're not honest with ourselves, right? We all want to be real, and I've never asked anything of you guys. You guys realize that? I've never asked anything more than for you just to be honest with who you are. I've never asked for you to put up a front. I've never asked for you to look like you're holy, right? I asked for you to be honest because if you're honest, then we can deal where you're at. But the worst thing that can happen is that you fool me, fool our leadership, fool our church, even try to fool God into thinking how okay you are when in reality it's a whitewashed tomb. There's a dead body underneath, inside, dead and dying. How do I be honest, PT, right? Don't, this, is how, this is how I know a lot of us we struggle with honesty because we don't have anyone to keep us accountable. You keep all your secrets to yourself. You hide the things that you do, but you're willing to go up front and, you know, look the part. But inside, I cannot share. I cannot reveal. I cannot show. We're afraid of some weird reason what we're afraid of, but we are constantly hiding. The fact that we hide from community, hide from a willingness to speak. I'm not even asking you to join small groups here. I'm asking, do you have people in your life that you're willing to confess to? The Bible says we should confess our sins to one another. Amen? Right? You don't have to confess it to me. If you you feel like, you know, PTI, I'm just not comfortable with you here. I'm okay with that. Right? Find someone that you are comfortable with and show that you actually are trying and seeking to be right here in the heart and not just trying to show it on the outside. The problem with the Corinthian church was that they said, we look good, we act right, everything looks good, but on the inside, Paul is saying, you're dying because you are not honest. You're not dealing with the hard questions of your personal life. You're going through the motion, and you're not even struggling with it, right? We call that a whitewashed tomb, right? Is that your heart, guys? Is that where we're at? Because I guarantee you, and I know some of you guys are thinking, well, 
How does that not make room for Jesus? Let me tell you, okay? The reason why God was not pleased with them, look, the reason why even though they, they experienced the very reality of God, the miracle of God, you have never walked through a sea that has been split before. You have never seen manna fall from heaven. You have never seen water burst forth from a rock in a dry and weary place. You have never seen that, and yet they have, and God was still not pleased with them because why? Look at verse 6 to verse 12. This is what he says. Three things he points out. Three things about their hearts that is very common to our hearts. Three very specific areas of their heart that constantly shows, if we live in it, how far from God we are and how much he is not there in our lives. Three very specific things. Idolatry, sexuality, and selfishness. Check this out. Verse 6. Now, these things occur as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So, this was written down for you. This was written down so you would know. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. They worshipped other gods. They began to uh, go back to their Egyptian roots of dancing and singing and celebrating to other things. Verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And then one day, 23,000 of them died. This is an example of what happens when you give your life over to things that are not of God. Verse 9, we should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble by, uh, as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. This is about them. This is them being selfish. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall, right? So Paul is saying you are, the reason why what you do has no power, the reason why I am critiquing and worried about your life at this moment is because you show me all of the right things I want to see that you think I want to see, but I look into your heart, I look into your actions, and what I see is this. What I see is a heart that is revering in idolatry, a heart that is numb to the sexual experiences of life. I see a heart that is constantly for themselves, right? And when you have a heart that, that manages itself in these three ways, there is no room for God. God was not pleased with the Israelites because he was not in their life. You realize that? That was it. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. I know some of you guys think like, oh, jealousy, that's a bad trait to have. How can God be jealous? Jealousy is evil, right? Human jealousy is evil, right? There's two types of jealousy in the Bible. There's a vicious jealousy and there's a righteous jealousy. A vicious jealousy is like, you know, um, you're envy, you're spiteful, you're frustrated, right? Uh, you're, you're constantly wanting something that belongs to somebody else. There's a vicious jealousy that goes on there. And you're right. And if, if, we, if we take that definition and we apply it to God, that will be a bad thing. But you know what the jealousy that God is? God's jealousy? This is what he says. Uh, God's, jealousy, God's jealousy is this. It is the zeal to protect. It is the zeal to keep what is his pure and wonderful. It is the zeal to keep what he loves deeply growing and flourishing. Do you guys realize that? The reason why idolatry, sexuality, and selfishness was such a, was such a very tough thing for God, was, was such a thing that angered God so deeply about them was because every time we engage in those areas, every time we engage in those areas, what we're saying is I'd rather trade something that's beautiful for something that's crap. I'd rather trade gold for pennies, diamonds for stones, God 
for things that are made of men, idols. Right? And God is saying, why? My zeal is for you to always have life. You're choosing things that will actually take your life. Let me, give you, let, me, let me tell you what I mean. If you've been here long enough, you understand this exact same examples I give every single time. Idolatry. Idolatry is pretty much this. Anything that you give your worth and your life to, and when you worship an idol, the only thing an idol does for you is that it continuously takes your life. Only God himself was willing to give his life for you. Every other idol you worship takes your life. For example, if you worship church, ooh, church takes your life, right? If you're puffed up with knowledge and you're a legalistic person who shows up to church, does the things of church, and you think I'm set because I got the religious atmosphere around me, let me tell you something, God, that is what we call fairy, that is hypocritical and pharisaical. That is the church issue where you're legalistic about everything. How does that kill me, PT? Because you're constantly living to try to prove yourself before God. You're constantly trying to make yourself look right, look good before God, and you're killing yourself over and over trying to look that way. And the moment you do something stupid and someone finds out about it, you're full of shame, you're full of guilt, and you run away. All idols do is kill you. Idols could be like, for example, your careers. You base your whole life on your career. You base your whole life on achieving this, this destination of whatever figures that you want to make in your life, whatever um, status you want to have in your life. You do everything in your life to achieve it, and you get rid of your family. You kill your family in the process. You neglect your family in the process. You neglect the people around you in the process in the pursuit of one goal and ultimately killing your own integrity and your dignity in the process in pursuing of it. Because you would rather have it than anything else. Money. Money. I'm, I'm, none of us is that filthy rich, but we understand. Money has the ability to grasp your heart in such a way where it's never enough. You always need more. And when you lose it, you lose a sense of your worth, your identity, and your security. Relationship. Maybe you don't care about money. Maybe you don't care about careers. Maybe you don't even care about church. But you definitely care about what people think of you. You definitely care about the need and the want to be loved. And so when someone loves you, you feel great about it. But when someone hates you, the one that you want to love, hates you or neglects you or forsake you, you're destroyed by it. All idols have this thing. It kills you. And God is saying, I am a jealous God because I have loved you with an everlasting love. And you have traded my love for something that would kill you instead. You traded a love that's supposed to lift you up. Free you for a love that for, for for a fleeting love that will destroy you and wipe you clean. Sexuality, right? Corinthians church, they struggle with sexuality. Sex is the picture of oneness. We've talked about this, how how when two people get together, it is the spiritual representation of what they physically have done. Right? Sexuality is the one ultimate way in which we see God, the reality of God. And when we begin to engage in sexual immorality, and that's pretty much sleeping with someone that's not your wife or your husband, right, outside of marriage, you do not care for the image of God nor to mirror the heart of God. And so God was angry at, this, at, this, at, this, at these people who saw his reality and yet still chose to neglect and forsake him. You guys realize that? 
or when they grumble. They grumbled and were killed. They test the Lord and died. What does grumbling do? Grumbling is not like, oh, man, this sucks. Grumbling is like, I don't really trust God. This sucks. Like, why are we here? Like, you know, is he really that good? Why are you putting me in this position for? Why am I unemployed right now? Why am I without a spouse right now? He must not be a good guy. He must not care about me. He must not think about me. Why can't he take away the sin in my life? Why can't he free me from this? He must not be real. He must not be powerful enough. And therefore, whatever. You grumble and you grumble. But the reality of grumble, the heart of grumble is pretty much this. You pretty much say, I do not trust in this God. I do not trust in him at all. Well, I'll say I'll trust in him. I'll use my words to project that I trust him. I'll show up to church. I'll lead a small group. I'll do ministry. I'll do what I'm supposed to do. I'll use my lips to proclaim it, but in my heart, the reality is he is not there. And so the whole issue here that Paul was having was this. You speak as if I am your Savior and Lord, but in your heart, I am not there. You speak as if I am the one that dictates and directs your life, but your life is dictated and directed by something else. I am not there. Who are you following? Who are you worshiping? It's not me. Who are you giving these praise to? It's not me. Who are you offering offerings to? It's not me. Who are you serving in ministry for? It's definitely not me. Because when I look at your heart, I am not there. And what is there is something else. You are a whitewashed tomb, clean on the outside, dead on the inside. You have all the form of godliness and yet no power within. You're not honest. You keep it quiet. You have no accountability in your life. You live in the shadows. You don't bring it out to the light. Because the moment you think someone will know about it, you think everyone will be ashamed, neglect, or judge you. How have we ever developed a church here? If you've been here at TLC long enough, you know that that is not the case, right? We have so many things that have come out to light, right, especially from your pastor. I'm still around, not fired yet, not yet, right, almost, right? You know these things, and yet still you live in the fear of the rejection of if someone knows your little secret, someone knows your darkness, they will reject you. We have never built a church like that. We have never built a community like that. And I have no idea where you got that lie from. It's not from us. All right? But all you're doing, all you're doing is you're creating a whitewashed, beautiful-looking Christian. Everyone's smiling, mosaic, but inside, dead body. But some of you guys are thinking, well, PT, look, let's be honest. If we're, gonna be, if we're all about honesty right now, idolatry, sexuality, selfishness. Like, that is, like, my top three right there, bro. Like, like am I done? Is this over? Are we, are, we, are we calling it quits now? No. Right? Never. I've messed up, PT. I slept around. Yeah, I know. Right? I messed up, PT. I've given my life to a lot of different things. I know. I messed up, PT. I grumble all the time. That I definitely know. Right? Where do we go from here? That's what Paul said. Man, this is such a beautiful thing. Verse 13 says this. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Okay? The form of godliness is not about how perfect you are in the church. 
the amount of level of service you provide to the community. It's not about those things. The form of godliness, you know what the real form of godliness is? It's the willingness to struggle because you know the direction that is true and right. And though you fight over and over with your idols, and though you battle over and over with sex, and though you struggle up and down constantly with your own selfish attention, there is a struggle in your heart for the light. And we see it, and we walk with you in it, and we battle with you with it, come alongside you in it, right? And God is saying, and you, and you know the only reason why you even have the ability to struggle? The only reason why you have the ability to struggle, some of us, we don't even struggle, right? Some of us, it's just like, there's no struggle, whatever, right? And that's the problem, right? But when there is a struggle, you know, the, the only reason why you're able to have the struggle is because you have the cross in your life. You're able to struggle because you have the cross in your life. No matter how often you run, how often you fail, how many times you go back and you see the cross and you remind yourself this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of all unrighteousness. And so we stand back again and we walk again. And though it's difficult and though we struggle again, we do it. See, there is only two answers that you get when you see God in the last days, when you stand before him. He will look at you and he says, I have never known you. But I have served you, God, my whole life. I have shown up to church every single Sunday. I even led small groups. I even did ministry. I went off to missions. God, I did everything in my life to show you that I am for you. But you never had me in your heart. Everything that you did was outwardly. There was nothing in your heart that showed me it was about me. There was nothing in your heart that showed me there was a real struggle. No one even knew you had a struggle let alone trying to hide it from me. I've never known you. Not that he doesn't know you, right? He doesn't know your existence. I've never known you means I have never had that relationship with you where there was an actual love that was passed back between us, right? Or we hear God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And you stand there and you say, well, really? I don't, I don't know if I was really that faithful, God. Like, I, I was struggling with this my whole entire life. Even in my deathbed, I could not even overcome it, God. But you struggled. You had the legacy of spiritual darkness in your life. And instead of giving into it, you struggled through it. And when you, when you fail, you continue to get back up and you move in the battle against it. You had the darkness and the principalities against you your whole life. And you continued to struggle through it until the day you took your last breath. You had the seduction of the things around you. And yes, you did fall. And yes, you did mess up. But every time you came back because you trust that the cross was real. You trust that what my son did for you was real. You trust that only I can save. And you came back every time. You struggled. So well done, my good, my faithful servant. It, it's not, it's never, wow, you're so pretty now. Right? You did so good. Good job, right? Look how much you served me. Never that. You know what God sees? Look how much you struggled for me. 
You struggle for me because why? There's only one reason why you struggle for God. It's because you actually love him. You don't struggle for something you don't love, right? This is, this is a great quote I, I, I have. Uh, one of our brothers, he read this book and he, uh, he posted it, a quote, and I liked it a lot because um, it's from a book I read a long time ago too. It's uh, from uh, Screw Tape Letters. Have you ever read that? It was a great, it's a great book. Right? And it's such, a, it's such an ingenious book written by C.S. Lewis. It's pretty much a, a, um, uh, a clever way of seeing the reality of the world, right? And so C.S. Lewis, what he did was he, 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 he turned the tables around. Instead of giving it from a Christian perspective, he gave it from a demon's perspective, right? So the, 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 the evil one in this book was God, right? The father was Satan, right? Um, Humans were the, the toys, right? And the demons were speaking to each other on how to tempt this person, how to struggle with this person. And, and teaching, there was a senior demon teaching a younger demon how to get into the mind of the enemy, right? what the enemy is really trying to do, right? And this is one of the warnings he gave the enemy, which is, is such a profound thing. He says this, he, being God, wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is there. You get me? If only the will to walk is there, he is pleased, even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, one would, that's the junior demon. Our cause is never more in danger, our cause being the cause of Satan and the principalities and darkness. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do the enemy's will, enemy being God, right? He looks around upon a universe from which every trace of the enemy seems to have vanquished or vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. The cause is never more dangerous than when a believer, a son of God, a daughter of God, who looks around the universe and says, God, where are you? God, I am struggling. God, I am falling. God, I am consistently falling into these traps that has robbed me of my soul, my joy, my life, that has caused me to have a deeper, darker, bitter heart. I've constantly fallen into this trap and yet has the will to say, and I will get back up and I will trust and I will obey. Even if I cannot see cannot feel, cannot sense your presence. And God says, well done, my good, my faithful servants. Well done. It is not about the pristine images that you create in church for yourself, for everyone to look at. It is the struggle of the brokenness that's in us, willingness to come back to the cross every single time. Jesus says there's only, the wages of sin is death. That's it. There's no way around it. The wages of sin is death. But Christ says, I will pay that debt for you. I will pay that wage for you. You will not die. Just get back up. Trust in that and keep walking. Every single time I'm robbed of my sanity, God, because I'm, I'm constantly trapped in this sin that I cannot get out of. It's habitual. It's plaguing me. It's killing me. I cannot get out of it. And I feel like I'm dying every single time. The shame, the guilt, the pressure all over me. I know. 
go to the cross. Remember there. Why? Because there the sin is paid for. Get back up. Walk again. Struggle through it again. Fight through it again. Fight through it until either one, I show you victory in this life, or two, I will show you victory in the life to come. But either way, victory is yours. It is yours. If I am yours. You guys follow me? Right? How do you make room for Jesus in your life, guys? I know you guys are all like somber, like, man, this is a very depressing message today, right? You got to have at least one out of ten, right? All right? How do you make room for Jesus? Definitely not about what goes on on the outside. It's about what goes on inside. Is God in your heart? Is Jesus directing it? Is he is Lord and Savior? The Bible says this. But with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confessed and is saved. You just have to trust and come back up. Each and every single time. That's it, guys. There's no magic formula. And again, I tell you, man, I've never, I've never tried to build a church with our leaders about hiding who we are or pretending to be something we're not. I've never, you know, um, tried my, I've tried my best in every way to be as transparent to you guys as possible to teach you that the struggle is real. And it's okay to struggle, and it's okay to be honest. Our church is not meant to be a place of, like, perfect, beautiful saints, right, but broken, hospitalized people in need of a Savior. And that's okay. But the worst thing that you can do is not be honest with yourself and your heart. Put up the action and the motion and the outwardness of godliness and inwardly, you're hiding, you're dishonest, and you're keeping these things to yourself, right? You need community. That's why we have the church. You need a place to be able to express the brokenness of where you're at. Not be afraid of it, but to walk with people in it, okay? We will walk with you, I promise, okay? Maybe we're not the perfect people sometimes, and maybe we don't work, walk perfectly all the time, right? But we will walk with you together, okay? Wherever we're at, we will walk you there. And then when we're no longer moving forward, we'll get someone else to walk with you who's probably walked ahead. But you will always walk with us. Okay? Know your heart, church. Amen? Let's pray. Mm-hmm.